I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examines, masks, swarms of bugs, virus colonies. These were some of the bizarre but common COVID dreams collected in a study by Harvard psychologist Deirdre Barrett. She joins us for an update on how we're still processing the pandemic and what's behind our collective fascination with dreams. People just love realizing that their mind is creating all this stuff that they're seeing and experiencing and characters that are not actual people. Just, it's a fascinating state of consciousness. And later, what can we do to become better sleepers? So yes, getting a nice mattress and a pillow is, is great. It's fun to get that kind of stuff, it's good, but it may not be the, the solution if you're laying in bed awake with insomnia. It's not the mattress, it's mm -hmm. something else going on. The science and benefits of sleep and the evolutionary purpose behind dreams. All ahead on Life Examined. Mythology, art, and history are full of stories of bizarre and wonderful dreams. Ancient societies believe that dreams were sent by the gods or their ancestors to predict the future. More recently, psychologists like Sigmund Freud believe the dreams represented an expression of our unconscious state. So do we all have the same dreams and nightmares? Is it important to share our dreams? And is it possible to control what we dream about? Back in the midst of the pandemic, we asked Harvard dream researcher Deirdre Barrett to explain what impact the pandemic was having on our dream patterns. She's been involved in a major study where thousands of people around the world write down their dreams and send them to her. She described a period of vivid and sometimes scary dream themes. There were swarms of bugs and insects, perhaps symbolizing the virus, and then loads of dreams about isolation, like jail cells and lonely colonies. Today, those themes have expanded to include anxiety about work, school, and even masks. Deirdre Barrett is an assistant professor of psychology in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Her books include The Committee of Sleep and Trauma and Dreams. Deirdre Barrett, it's a pleasure to welcome you back to Life Examined almost a year later. Yes, I never would have thought that pandemic dreams would still be a uh, focus this, uh, this far after the last <laughs> time I talked to you, but... Uh, it's nice to be back in any case. Wonderful. Well, well, about a year or so, a bit more than that now, we were talking about all of these crazy insect dreams, um, bugs of all types entering people's dreams. Uh, my sense is you've been following the dream lives of, of thousands out there. And I wonder, um, what are we seeing right now happening in, in the unconscious dream world? Can you, can you kind of update us on some of your research? Well, none of the early themes have completely disappeared. I mean, people are still dreaming literally about getting the virus, coughing, spiking a fever, thinking they have COVID. They're still dreaming metaphors like the swarms of bugs attacking them. But those have become less. And actually, even within months, they became somewhat less. And what was really strong that first spring and summer were ones about the secondary effects, people dreaming about kind of exaggerated scenarios about lockdown, people who were isolating alone would dream that they were thrown into solitary confinement or being sent off to be a one-person Mars colony, and people who were sheltering with family or roommates would dream lack of privacy or crowding kinds of dreams. The whole neighborhood's moved into my house. I can't walk across my living room because of all the cots set up. But then much more recently, there have been more changes yet as as schools and workplaces reopened there became a lot of anxiety about going back to work and going back to school which often took the form of my first day back at school or work and everything is going wrong everybody is pale and ill and coughing uh, on my first day back at work or people driving up to schools with their children and again either they're about to let them out into a crowd of kids who all look sick or don't have masks on or much weirder things are happening the school building is aged a hundred years since they last saw it and they're sure the roof will cave in if they let their child go in there or ghosts have moved into the schoolhouse. Um, so, so it really has changed over time. There's also um, a lot more 
increasingly about masks. And at first it was always an anxiety dream, like someone would realize they didn't have their mask on or someone else didn't, or just strange dreamlike things would be happening. Their mask would turn into some sort of creature that was clinging to their face and then the creature would jump off and run away and they wouldn't be protected. Um, but more recently, the mass dreams have changed in yet another way, which is that some of them are still anxiety dreams, but others are more social shame dreams. Mm. The person realizes they don't have their mask on, and instead of, oh my God, I might catch COVID, it's, oh my God, what will people think of me for forgetting my mask or for not having this mask on? It's like the new naked in public dream mm. is, I don't have my mask on in public. <laughs> You know, it's funny. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was just back at the grocery store the other day, and, and I, I just had one of those moments where I looked around, at least where I am in, in the Santa Barbara area, and still everybody's in masks, right, a year and a half later. And this just the, the image of the mask is so omnipresent, depending on where you live. And I keep thinking, you know, how, how is that image kind of swimming around my own psyche or my own unconscious? So I guess, in a sense, it doesn't surprise me, right, that, that we're seeing these kind of motifs circle back in people's dreams at this point. Yeah. I mean, the vast majority of mass dreams are just these sort of, you know, practical reminders to self that you're supposed to have it on. Yeah, Do you? Yeah. And the shaming you, know, you and said. Anxiety kind of, if you don't. Yeah. yeah. And shaming now if you don't or embarrassment about not not following the rules. Um, but but there are all these kind of one-off weirder mask dreams um, that that masks have begun to grow to our fa faces so we can't take them off <laughs> yeah. and they're having to invent ways to drill in behind masks to get food there um, or um, or people are people are now in like sort of completely encased pods that can't you know can't have any body contact because because they have these big inflatable things that are like a mask for the whole body um, so there are all kinds of bizarre variations on the mask dreams but just a ton of whoops I don't have my mask on well you're an evolutionary psychologist and and, and I want to kind of get inside your mind a little bit and your fascination um, how do we understand dreams as being part of our evolution as humans? Help us understand that. Neurologically, dreams are mostly happening in a state called rapid eye movement sleep, when mm. the brain, about 90 minutes into sleep and then 90 minutes thereafter, reactivates to the level that it is awake. The rest of sleep is very damp down brain activity. And in REM sleep, the brain becomes very active again. And when it was discovered in the 50s, all they could see that was that it looked pretty much as active as awake. But now that we can put more than 100 electrodes around and construct a 3D image of what's going on, we know that some areas, um, like the secondary visual cortex that's associated with, with imagination and imagery, is even more active than we're when we're awake, that some emotion areas are even more active, that our movement areas are more active. But then other areas like verbal ones and areas associated with logical linear reasoning are quite damped down compared to being awake. So we're in this state, and REM sleep uh, shows up across pretty much all mammals. So it probably originated for some physiologic benefits. Um, it seems to be involved in restoring certain neurotransmitters uh, in our brain, and that's why some areas are damped down while others are very active. It's kind of which ones need to be restoring their transmitters. So some of my more neurological colleagues say kind of REM sleep is what has a function and, and dreams are some sort of of epiphenomena that doesn't matter. They're a side effect of REM sleep. But I think that's a little naive about evolution that that anything that's existed since the beginning of mammals just has function upon function layered on top of it. And that probably for all primates, but certainly for humans, that there's a lot of kind of thinking and problem solving that takes advantage of this visual, spatial, looser association intuitive state that we're in to uh, to do useful things with the thoughts that go on while we're in dreams. 
Interesting. And, and, and what you said, particularly about this idea that when we're in this deep REM sleep, the, the, the imaginal part of our brain, the creative part comes alive, but, but what's quieted is the kind of logical linear part of the brain. C- can you say a little bit more about that? Yes. I mean, again, there, there are a few people that sort of like to say that, that, you know, dream thought is wiser than waking thought. And I certainly don't think that, but it, it can be very helpful as a supplement just because it's so very different than the kinds of ways we think when we're awake that if we're stuck on something because the conventional wisdom is wrong or because we have a sort of a neurotic personality trait that keeps us trying the same not terribly effectual thing over and over, that dreams just loosen that up and think outside the box easily. Uh, again, in this more intuitive, more visualize it. So when you're stuck by day, dreams are likely to make a breakthrough just by how different their nature is. They're the very likeliest to make a breakthrough when, when a solution is benefited by visualizing it vividly or when it's benefited by a think outside the box. But to some extent, just any kind of problem or question we have may get some benefit from dreams just because they're different than waking thought. Mm. How do we understand certain um, universal dreams, or at least, I don't know if they're universal totally, but but the ones we hear are common in the U.S., you know, you're late to the class, you didn't know you had, and you have to take the test or something. How, how do we make sense of that, or how would you think about it? I mean, that is that is certainly common across Western societies who have years and years and years of schooling Mm. and rather obviously doesn't show up in tribal societies where sort of learning in an apprentice way how to do hunting or hut building or whatever um, is more what what you're tested on as you come toward adulthood. Um, But Certainly, I think you always want to get the dreamers association to things like what is a test or, and and there are all kinds of variations on those test dreams. I mean, some people have always overslept the test. Mm -hmm. Others are looking for the room and can't find the room. Others have studied the wrong subject. Uh, Others get into the test and it's in some unreadable hieroglyphics. And I think each of those metaphors for kind of how you are about to fail a test, what you have done that is leading to your failing the test, um, you can't find your way versus you studied the wrong thing, probably have different meanings, but also just to any dreamer, you know, a test is a slightly different thing. But obviously, for most people, it has something to do with being judged and evaluated by authority figures and sort of um, determined as to whether you're adequate or wanting. And in the test anxiety dream, usually implication, you're going to be found wanting. And people dream it long after they're out of school and tend to dream it at times when something in their waking life is stirring up this, I'm being judged, I may not measure up kind of feeling. And you see different but parallel things for people where sit down paper and pencil tests have just never been that important. I mean, even within our society, uh, there are people like who always knew they wanted to be an actor from childhood onward or always wanted to be a musician. And they have audition dreams. Mm. They don't have paper and pencil mm-hmm. test dreams, but they're going in to play their instrument or act their part. And you have the same parallel. They can't find the theater. Or they've studied the wrong piece of music or the wrong script. Um, you know, so it's whatever is important to be competent at that that is um is coming up represented in the dream. And then, like I say, in in societies that don't put as much emphasis on sit-down, paper-and-pencil yeah. schooling, other sorts of tasks of sort of proving yourself in late adolescence are much likelier to play that role. Deirdre, what about some of the, the classical analysts, like Freud or Carl Jung? Do, do you feel like they were on to anything when it came to dreams? I think... Yeah, I think all the early analysts were onto things, um, and some of the some of their better insights have just folded into general psychological thinking and are not that strongly associated with them. 
And I think they all were making some major mistakes. Mm. And if anything, it's their sort of mistaken ideas that get the most you know, still associated with their name. Any examples, for um, example? Yeah, I mean, Freud, Freud thought that all dreams were wish fulfillment, even though he, he thought they had to be extremely disguised to account for the fact that, that, that many, if not most, dreams do not look like they're very obviously fulfilling wishes. Um, witness what I was just saying about the, the COVID dreams. Um, but he also thought that these wishes were mostly sexual in a very sort of childlike sexual way or very aggressive in, again, a sort of primitive childlike type of aggression. And that's what dreaming was about, was these wishes for, um, for childlike sex and aggression. And Jung wrote something that I think was a great counterpoint to that about all of the wisdom in our dreams and, um, and that, that dreams were pointing to mythic things and he wrote about archetypes within us that, that we were not consciously aware of that were guiding us in our dreams. Um, and I think they're both just an extreme exaggeration of certain elements of dreams, that dreams are certainly at times sexual or aggressive or childlike, and they're certainly at times wise and transcendent, uh, but they're not simply mostly one or the other. So the Freudian sort of things about how many curved objects were either penises or breasts or vaginas and the Jungian stuff about, you know, sort of major mother goddesses speaking to us in our dreams. Um, I think the things that we most think of as Freudian or Jungian are the ones that are pretty exaggerated from the typical dream. It's not that they don't represent anything in a dream. Whereas just the idea that dreams are coming from the unconscious, that they express something, but maybe metaphorically, that they are thinking more in images and less in words are things that Freud first pointed out and that Jung pretty much agreed with. And I think those were, were good insights to counter some of the ideas that were around just before their time, either that dreams were nonsense or dreams were religious messages or dreams were going to accurately foretell the future. I think that dreams are our kind of psychological strivings of a more unconscious nature, that some of those things, like I say, that, that, that were their best insights are ones that have just been absorbed into psychology and we don't think of as Freudian or Jungian that much. And some of their more exaggerated, just not very accurate ones often are the ones that most get called Freudian or Jungian these days. One thing I, I'm interested in, and I'm sure a number of our listeners are as well, is this is this question of lucid dreaming. I, I maybe had one, I'm not even sure, but I think it's something we all wish we had more of if they were positive. Do do they exist, really? I mean, is this something we can tap into? I, I'm curious to get your thoughts on it. Yes, they, they de lucid dreams definitely exist. Um, they're not particularly common. Uh, and there are some techniques that can increase your odds of having them, but, but they, that, they still don't work like magic and make most people have lots of lucid dreams. So they're, they're very real, but they're sort of a rare creature for most dreamers. Um, and most people who've had one want to have more. Um, unlike opposite of COVID dreams, more lucid dreams are positive ones. Um, either they have just inherently sort of beautiful imagery or people are flying and doing fun things, or even if the content is something that might objectively seem neutral, people just love sort of realizing that their mind is creating all this stuff that they're seeing and experiencing and characters that are, are not actual people. Uh, just, it's a fascinating state of consciousness for anyone that's ever experienced it. Do we know how that happens or, or what's going on in the brain? Uh, 
yeah, we sort of do. What's going on in the brain is that the prefrontal area just behind our forehead, which is where most, uh, most logic happens, it's where kind of reality testing happens. Um, that area is very damped down during rapid eye movement sleep usually. And when somebody is having a lucid dream, the prefrontal is usually somewhat more activated than during a typical REM period. It's not, it's not functioning as strongly as when we're awake, but it's kind of midway. The rest of the brain is pretty much in typical REM sleep. There are a few differences have been found in other areas, but mostly the prefrontal is waking back up a little bit while... And- while we're basically in REM. Any tips of of how to do that that you could just quickly share with us? Yeah, the two techniques that help the most, but but they're not magic and you really have to stick with them are, first of all, suggesting to yourself as you're falling asleep that you want to know you're dreaming tonight. Tell yourself that as a phrase. And if you've ever had a lucid dream, you might sort of replay it, especially the moment of realizing that you're dreaming. Um, and, and so just self-suggestion as you're dropping off to sleep is one thing. But the other thing is what we call a daytime reality check. And it's sort of a two-part thing. First of all, you just make it a habit periodically throughout the day. You can just do it freeform, or if you have trouble remembering to otherwise, you can set a beeper on your watch or phone to remind you. And so several times through the day, you ask yourself if you're sure you're awake or if you might be dreaming. And first you just do that free form, really try to take the question seriously, entertain it, see if there's anything that would suggest you might be dreaming. And then also have one or two very specific tests that you then do. And they have to be something that functions differently in your dreams than when you're awake. And there's nothing universal for everyone, but there are a lot that work for many, many people. Like lots of people can't read properly in their dreams. It ranges from no text will look readable at all for some people to people who can read about a sentence at a time, but not a lot, or they read a sentence, look away and look back and it will say something different. Um, so, So for very many people, something works oddly about reading and so finding text to read in your dream is is a way to to check this um so by day when you're asking yourself if you're sure you're awake could you be dreaming you first do it in general and then you pick up something with some printing on it and try to read it and if you're one of those who needs to look away and look back to to see if it might be a dream you do that um Time pieces work oddly for some people in dreams, so they make a good reality check for some people. Uh, Light switches often do not immediately dim or brighten the lighting in the same way in a dream that they would awake. So you ask yourself the question, you look for the text, the time piece, the light switch, You, you try to use it, you check whether it's working properly, and, and the reason this works is that any sort of new learning practice that you're doing by day is very likely to make it into your dream. And eventually you'll have a dream where you're asking yourself if you're dreaming and whether things look realistic in general. And then you find something to read or you find a timepiece, a clock or a watch, or you find a light switch and test whether it's working properly and lo and behold in the dream it doesn't it's so interesting so in a way it's kind of learning how to be active in the dream it's learning how Mm -hmm. to be a participant lastly for for those that are tired of certain repetitive anxious dreams do, do you have any suggestions writing them down talking about them what do you think i think if you're having ones that puzzle you that uh that talking about them, the, associating to what, what these images might symbolize for you. Um, I think that just dream sharing is helpful. Um, that, you know, when I, when I will be talking on one media thing about people dreaming about bug attacks, you know, some listener on the other side of the world will sort of feel some solidarity with with other humans that, oh my God, we're all having these very similar dreams. 
um, when I recount some of the ones about the secondary effects of the pandemic, like the being sent off to be a one-person Morris colony or being trapped in this crowded place where the whole neighborhood has moved in. Um, people, people resonate with, with that. There was one dream where a mother who was actually homeschooling her 10-year-old um, dreamed that the school sent her a message saying they just sent the entire class toward her house and she was to homeschool the entire class of 10-year-olds for the rest of the pandemic. And when I tell it to people, like, you get these, like, nervous laughing, but then parents start sharing things about how stressful they're finding trying to be the, the teacher at home, I think much more quickly and openly and deeply than if the same woman were just saying, you know, I'm really stressed by homeschooling. Nobody ever, you know, taught me anything about education and my kid doesn't really treat me the way he does his teacher. Um, you know, she'd get some sympathy, but there's something about that dream that the whole class is coming to my house for the rest of the pandemic that really sort of cuts to the emotion about it. So I think that I think that sharing is really important. But if you are just having repetitive anxiety dreams where you feel like you know what this is about, it's it's the oh my god I'm getting COVID, uh, oh my god I've forgotten my mask. Um, that the best way to have fewer of those dreams is not to fall asleep thinking, oh, I don't want to have an anxiety dream, I don't want to have an anxiety dream, but it's to think of what you would like to dream about. Um, it can be as simple as a person you're not getting to see through the pandemic or a place that you will go once everything has opened up again. Or maybe it's some much quirkier kind of favorite dream, like some people love flying dreams. But just think about what you, what you really would enjoy dream, dreaming about tonight or some all-time favorite dream that you've had and fall asleep suggesting, I want to dream about that, I want to dream about that, and holding images, again, either that just repeat past dreams that have been your favorites or of some ideal one you'd like to have. And that works about half the time. It doesn't work perfectly, but it, it changes dreams toward the positive quite frequently for people. I've been speaking with Deirdre Barrett, Assistant Professor of Psychology in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Thank you so much for joining us again uh, on Life Examined. We really appreciate it. Nice to talk to you. Still to come on Life Examined, the latest science behind getting a good night's sleep. Stay with us. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. Most of us will sleep for roughly a third of our lifetimes, which is a reminder of just how essential it is to our physical and mental well-being. Poor sleep is associated with everything from obesity to depression, and it makes us less resilient to infection and disease. So why is it so many of us complain about getting a good night's sleep? And are we going about it all wrong? In his latest book called How to Sleep, The New Science-Based Solutions for Sleeping Through the Night, Author Rafael Palayo addresses the science of sleeping and warns about what he calls, quote, an epidemic of sleep deprivation. Rafael Palayo is a clinical professor at Stanford University School of Medicine in the Division of Sleep Medicine. Dr. Palayo, welcome to Life Examined. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. You know, this is a show where we love to think about the intersections of, of science and philosophy, faith, a lot of the big stuff. And I know that you understand the sleep and the dream worlds as, as, a, as a realm that, that kind of does fit into some of these big topics. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? It, it's been speculated that the origin of the belief in an afterlife, the belief in a spirit world, it was a need from early on to explain our dreams. We should have no doubt that... Uh, Early people love their family members just as much as we love our family members. And how can you explain that somebody you love died, somebody died in childbirth, 
you 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 cremate them. Somebody's attacked. Some in any situation, you bury them. Mm. And after doing all this, you still see them in your dreams. It has to be explained somehow. And pretty much all religions talk about dreams. There's not a single religion I'm a, that I, I'm aware of that does not discuss dreams. And Christianity certainly is there. The Old Testament is there. But in the Muslim faith and in, in Hinduism, all the religions, as far as we know, talk about sleep and dreams especially. And in fact, there's a whole tradition of dreams being a vehicle for the gods to communicate with people. Mm. And that's, that's throughout uh, history that, that's there. And a lot of people still believe that. So there is definitely close ties in to the mysteries of sleep and uh, development of our culture. Definitely even very influential in our culture. In fact, a, a good leader is described as having a good vision. And that still comes from the concept of our dreams, mm. I believe. And I guess this just speaks to the fact that um, there, there's something deeply mysterious and interesting about uh, the other half of our life, which is spent uh, in this unconscious state. Sure. And, and that is always the question, why do we bother sleeping? And there's an inherent paradox to sleep. The paradox is that we have to sleep for reasons that are not entirely clear, but when we are sleeping, we're vulnerable to being attacked. I mean, when anybody's in any kind of danger or anybody's being warned about something uh, physical or or not, a common phrase is keep your eyes open, mm. you know, open your eyes. And what do we do in sleep is the complete opposite. We close our eyes. So we're turning inwardly. And why do we do this if we are at risk of being attacked? And in fact, all animals, and we're no exception, have developed ways of protecting ourselves while we're sleeping because there's this paradox of sleep. We must do it for reasons that are not entirely clear, but we're, we're putting ourselves at risk of being attacked while we're doing it. So whatever sleep's functions are for the nest are so important that we, we go through this process. Well, so I guess this begs the question, we have a whole lot more science now in terms of what's happening in the brain and the body. How, how do you understand sleep from a scientific or an evolutionary perspective? For humans, you have to think about some special traits about being a human. How can we be so-called eight-hour sleeping mammals if we have to feed our babies every two to four hours? Right? A newborn baby has to eat every two to four hours. So how can we really sleep eight hours in a row? Uh, unless we're biologically wired to stop sleeping, take care of a situation, and then go back to sleep. That, that is built in, into the wiring of our sleep. And it's not just mothers. Um, any any one of us is in situations where we're in combat or any degree of uncertainty in our lives. And how the brain handles uncertainty is by often by staying awake or sleeping lightly. We should be able to push off sleep. Anything that's essential for our existence, we should be able to do without temporarily because we're not fragile creatures. We're robust organisms. So we can hold our breath on the water. We can skip a meal without going to hypoglycemic shock. And we can put off sleep if we have to up to a point but we always will have to sleep. As far as sleep functions, we think of it as both a metabolic process. We often think of sleep as restoring. So it's restoring some things in our brains. We can talk about what those restoring process may be. But also, sleep seems to be involved very much in, in memory processing mm -hmm. and gathering of information. We're turning inwardly to decide, you know, what did we learn today and how does that relate to what we learned in the past? So what are we trying to remember? But also sometimes we need to forget things. And sleep may play a role in forgetting also. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, I think that sleep is going to, uh, when we learn more of the science of sleep, it's going to re the biology of sleep will reveal itself to be part of the biology of creativity. Mm. Uh, you know, there, if, if being creative is a biological function of humans as problem solvers, then what's the, what, what's the mechanism? How, how does creativity physically work? There's got to be a biological process involving creativity, and that's probably going to tie into our, our dreaming patterns and our sleep overall. Mm. I'd love to come back to that in a little bit, but but while we're on this subject, do you think there are um, different sleeping patterns within humans, uh, whether it's by gender or by age? I mean, I think of the infant that'll sleep, you know, for twelve hours or so. But but it seems to be that there's some kind of even discrepancies within within just humans, right? Sure. Um, if sleep, if you believe that sleep is inherently the most dangerous thing that we can do as animals and as organisms then it would stand to reason that there would be different patterns of sleeping. Um, and you mentioned uh, babies, and babies will sleep 12 hours maybe at night, but they can also obviously sleep a lot during the daytime. So a newborn may sleep 16 to 18 hours. But then on the other side of life, um, when people get older, um, I see lots and lots of patients 
who told me that they started sleeping worse as they got older. And for example, when women go through menopause, sleep is frequently interrupted. And the question, well, what's the, why would that happen? And it turns out that there may be some biological protective part to this. If you're going to have these teenagers sleep so deeply uh, when they're asleep and their baby sleep so deeply, it would stand to reason that maybe some older members of, of the group would sleep more lightly and be protective over the overall tribe or herd. So there may be some value to this collectively for this. We know that when uh, teenagers go through puberty, they tend to have a natural biological shift to staying up later at night. And other, by the way, other animals seem to do this also when, when they sexually mature, they shift to later sleep, sleep times. But this seems to be balanced by a tendency in people over age 50, I'm over age 50, to go to bed earlier. Uh, so as we get older, we tend to go to bed earlier. Uh, it's harder to stay up late at night as we, get, as we do that. But overall, it seems to work. In addition to this individual variability, people often describe themselves as morning people or night, or night people, uh, short sleepers, long sleepers. There's genetic variability within the biological clock. Um, and that, that biological diversity also influences how we characterize our own personal sleep. You've mentioned that, that sleeping has some metabolic functions. C- can you go a little bit further into that and explain how that all works within the body? The first thing to always remember is our brain is an electrochemical organ. Everything that's happening, every thought, you know, everything that's going on with your brain activity requires energy. How is that energy being depleted? Um, energy at a cellular level is um, mediated through um, adenosine triphosphate, ATP, if you remember that in high school biology. And the ATP, the adenosine triphosphate, is the product of eating sugar. The reason we eat food is we're going to take the food and convert it eventually into energy. That's adenosine triphosphate is how that's stored, and the brain uses a lot of this. I think the estimated is about 20% or more of our calories are consumed by our brain. And I saw recently on, on, a, a, on a show that they were saying that when people play chess, uh, I like playing chess, that chess players actually consume a lot of calories simply sitting there thinking. So there's, there's going to be a lot of energy being used up by simply thinking. And the byproduct of the adenosine triphosphate being used for energy, one of the byproducts is something called adenosine. Well, it turns out that the more adenosine is in our brain, the sleepier we are. So one of the reasons that we get sleepy is because our brains are building up this adenosine levels in our brain. And what blocks adenosine um, in our heads is caffeine. So the reason we drink coffee is actually to make us more alert by blocking uh, the adenosine levels that are building up on our sleep debts. But the byproduct of this, if I may, is that um, in addition to the adenosine being used, um, also all those neurotransmitters, all those peptides that are being created, all that signaling that goes on, they also have their own waste products. And there's current thoughts that one of the functions of sleep is the reestablishing and the cleaning up of these metabolites. Um, you know, if you have a party, if you have any event, in any organizational, you know, you go to your work, there's all this activity going on. But when the day's over, a crew of people will come in and clean, right? These invisible people somehow that, that, that vacuum and do all this work. So some of this maintenance work is happening inside our brains. Um, and that the reason that we sometimes get these neurodegenerative diseases, these horrible diseases like Alzheimer's, Maybe because there's an impairment in the um, in the metabolic cleaning up of our brains, um, and that's an avid avid area of research right now. Now, this description of sleep as as a way of restoring energy makes sense for most of sleep, but the paradox is our dreaming, because when we're dreaming, we're actually consuming more energy, and there's some parts of our brain that consume more energy when we're dreaming than when we're awake. So, if you think about it, for you to have a um, for you to hear my voice, basically, it's a passive situation. I'm talking, you're receiving that information. For you to have a dream where you're hearing something, you got to create that. It requires more energy. So in the dreaming state, we're actually using up more energy. And if you have a sedentary lifestyle, for your listeners out there, for all of us who have sedentary lifestyles, for many of us, our peak heart rate, our biggest workout is when we're dreaming. That's when you hit your peak heart rate. And this may be a reason why people die in their sleep, why people get heart attacks in their sleep, because of the metabolic demands of dreaming by itself. That's really fascinating. Yeah. Well, this, you mentioned a sedentary lifestyle, you mentioned caffeine. To me, this brings up this question of why is it that everyone I seem to talk to, or maybe even when I talk to myself, um, we all talk about problems sleeping. 
You know, it, it seems to be in every household, it says it feels as if in the modern era, there's just not enough sleep or it's interrupted sleep. So can you very briefly try and break down why you think we've become so poor at this really necessary function? I think the main thing is that we've not made sleep a priority in our lives. Sleep is what we're doing when we have uh, the time left. So we try to squeeze things out of it. Uh, and I think that's what occurs. We're pressuring ourselves to sleep. If you go to bed thinking, I got 6.2 hours before I have to wake up to take care of this and that, you're pressuring yourself to sleep. The way sleep works, sleep is a, will, will come always, will always arrive. But our brains can only keep ourselves awake. If, if I were to say to you, uh, stay awake right now, you know, or, you know, you lose your job if you, if, you don't, if you don't stay awake the second. You can force yourself to stay awake if you, for a little bit. But if I tell you the opposite, fall asleep right now on command, you can't do it. You can't fall asleep on command. And what people often want is a kind of an on-off switch for their brains. And you often hear people tell me this. I hear this every day, pretty much. People say, my problem is I can't turn off my brain. And many of you listeners might have said that. My problem is I can't turn off my brain. Well, that's a misunderstanding of how sleep works. Their brain is not meant to be turned off. Sleep is an active process. So the brain is never really turned off. That's not going to happen. So you're pushing it wrong. But if you make sleep a priority in your life, you'll find a lot of people tell you it's, it's a great thing that they do, how wonderful they feel. All of us should have memories of waking up feeling refreshed. Saturday mornings when you're a little kid, not having to go to school. The pleasure that, you know, the, the, love, of, of the, the love of life that you get from a good night's sleep is amazing. Talk to us now about some, some practical elements of turning that brain off, turning off the, the, the carousel of thoughts that so many of us deal with. Can, can you walk us through, I think, just some, some basic tips as to how we, we sure. can begin to integrate this into so, our lives? For a lot of people, the only time they're alone with their thoughts is when they're in bed. Think about your life. When are you doing nothing but, but thinking? Mm. Right? For many of us, they'll go, oh, well, I'm in the gym, I'm driving. No, you're doing something else. You're driving, you're in the gym, you're doing something else. When you're doing nothing but thinking. For many of us, the only time we're alone with our thoughts is when we're in bed. So let's say you have 10 things to do on any given day, and you got eight of them done. If you get eight out of 10 things done, you had an amazing day. But the two that you forgot to do, what are you going to remember? Laying in bed, because that's when you're alone with your thoughts. But if instead of, of thinking about these things, you decide that you're going to uh, listen to a podcast, for example, you may be listening to this right now. Or you're going to listen to music or the TV or something else. You're going to read a book until you kind of collapse. And so you not address these things that are pending in your life. After a few hours, your brain's going to pop awake and remind you, hey, you didn't take care of this. The, what you really want to do when you go to sleep at night is give yourself a sense of serenity. People often say things like, well, I want to sleep like a baby. I slept like a baby. But babies don't sleep that well, right? Our best sleepers are really eight and nine-year-old people. Eight and nine-year-old people have a sense of serenity. They get tucked in at night. Um, they don't have any real cares, cares to, to, to keep them awake. And what you really want to do is give yourself a sense of serenity. Well, we all have problems. We all have unfinished things in the back of our mind. As a physician, I'm never caught up. But the question is, once I'm in bed, am I allowing myself to say, my day is over? Tomorrow is another day. And you, you have to create this serenity. That, that's why mindfulness uh, techniques and meditations are sometimes helpful to sleep, because you put you in that right frame of mind. But the best way, I think, to get rid of some of those racing thoughts is simply to be organized and give yourself some time to think away from the bed. So you know that, okay, I got to take care of this, take care of that. And sometimes list and journaling can help with that. But always understand that one, you may wake up for one reason, but you may stay awake for a different reason. So you may wake up because you have to go to the bathroom, but you then you stay awake wondering what's going on, uh, what's happening, is there noise over there? So we want to get to that state of serenity. And that's the key concept, I think, to get the best sleep you can, is to go to bed in, that, in, that, in the right frame of mind. Mm -hmm. You're looking forward to sleeping. Sleeping should not be a chore. Mm -hmm. I, I really appreciate that. And I, I love the idea of bringing that into our adult lives. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I think you're hitting on something really important. And of course, um, in our consumerist societies, we're, we're taught that, well, you need to get the right mattress and the right pillows and maybe a weighted blanket. Does that stuff matter? What do you think? To a degree, it does. Um, so you have to be comfortable. You have to feel good about feeling safe, comfortable and loved. And, and you have to be comfortable. That's a key thing. I work in a sleep laboratory, and we want people to be comfortable in all aspects, including that our staff be very friendly and welcoming to our patients because you have to feel comfortable. When we were little kids, we would sleep anywhere. You probably have memories of, of being at a friend's sleepover and sleeping on, on the floor, and you were just happy. 
and as a teenager or as a college crashing on somebody's couch and feeling happy to do that. But as we get older, we seem to be more sensitive to our sleeping surfaces. Um, and also we have more disposable income. So we view it as a luxury. Um, every fine hotel probably sells mattresses to its, to its uh, customers. People are checking out because they slept so well while they're there. So there is value to it. And now there's more technology in the mattress industry. And there's a lot of competition for it. Uh, some mattress companies are talking about how they have cooling surfaces built into their, their surfaces. Um, we sleep better in a cooler environment. We sleep better. Uh, we don't sleep as well when it's hot. But always keep in mind that who's looking to, to buy this new technology, these new mattresses, or people have complaints about their sleep to begin with. If you're sleeping just fine on your current mattress, you're not going to go spend $1,000 on another mattress. It's usually somebody who already has another issue with their sleep and looking for a solution. Um, and I think it's important that before you go um, spend all that money on something else, figure out if there's anything physically wrong with your sleep, what's going on. In modern sleep medicine, it has reached a point where the vast majority of people who have poor sleep can improve. It's unusual for one of my patients not to get better. Sometimes they don't, but the vast majority will get better. And that's true, not, not of just where I work, but anywhere where there's accredited uh, sleep centers. So yes, getting a nice mattress and a pillow is, is great. Um, it's fun to get that kind of stuff. It's, it's, it's good. But it may not be the, the solution if you're laying in bed awake with insomnia. It's not the mattress. It's mm -hmm. something else going on. Yeah, and it makes me think of all of the sleep aids out there. You know, we hear of melatonin as maybe being the safest, but then we th we hear of, for example, um, epidemics of of Ambien and mid people driving in the middle of the night while they're sleeping, or you know, memory loss. I mean, it seems, but you know, you walk down any aisle of of a health food store or a supermarket, and there's just tons of of medicine out there that's trying to fix this stuff. Is any of that stuff good for us? I mean, they're just tools. You got to think of these things as tools. Mm. The earliest medications probably ever done were uh, either love potions or sleeping potions, and often were the same thing uh, they would give somebody. Hmm. So people taking something for their sleep has gone on since the beginning of time. People have taken sleep, inducing substances, hallucinatory substances for spiritual reasons. So people will take things all the time. The only people who are looking for these um, medications or, or supplements are people having trouble sleeping to begin with. So if you ask, if you're a good sleeper, what's the point of taking any of these things? It won't, won't make a difference. But if you're somebody who's suffering with poor sleep, and it's important to understand that when you don't sleep well, it really hurts. It's a, it's a horrible experience because in the back of the mind of everybody who has poor sleep is knowing that if they got better sleep, they could do better in life. Even though I'm a sleep doctor, what I take care of is people who have complaints about how they feel when they're awake, which they attribute to their sleep. So if somebody says not sleeping well, it goes, well, why, why? so what's the big deal you didn't sleep well? Oh, because the next day I don't do as well. So that's what we have to de deal with. And we have to always address next day functioning. So you don't want to equate sedation with sleeping. Obviously, if you drink enough alcohol, you can pass out. You will be out. But you're not going to wake up feeling particularly good the next day. So sleeping and sedation is not the same thing. Um, historically, sleeping pills have gotten actually safer, not stronger. We had stronger sleeping pills in the 50s than we have now. We had barbiturates back then. We all heard about quaaludes in the uh, 60s and 70s. That stuff is, is not available. So modern sleeping pills are safer now than they ever have been. You mentioned uh, uh, Ambien, generic name is Zolbidem. Well, you ask any, uh, you ask a lay person, what do you think is, is safer? Zolbidem, Ambien, or Tylenol PM? Well, Ambien is a prescription drug. Tylenol PM is over the counter. Therefore, Tylenol PM must be safer. Ask an emergency room doctor, they'll say, no, it's quite the opposite. They worry more about a Tylenol PM overdose than an Ambien overdose because Tylenol PM, the, the, the acetaminophen, can, can destroy your liver. So it's, the over-the-counter stuff can be more dangerous uh, than the prescription items. So it's not as simple that whether they're good or bad. They're just tools. So my goal with all my patients is the same. I want you to sleep through the night and wake up refreshed, ideally without medication. But we will use medications as needed. The trend in sleep medicine in general lately has been to get away from medications because we're now doing more behavioral training. Cognitive behavioral training um, seems to work very well for, for sleep and specifically for insomnia. But the pendulum may start swinging the other way because there's a new generation of sleeping pills that's emerging now that might be uh, valuable. Um, and, and maybe the, the, the next wave, how we go on this. So, and, and you mentioned about melatonin as being the safest. Just to point out, 
Um, the melatonin that, that you're buying over the counter is not a prescription quality item. And this has actually been tested. A study in Canada looking at over the counter melatonin found that the, what's in the bottle fluctuated by over 400% of what's on the label. The quality varied extremely. Even between brands, it was fluctuating a lot. And because they want the melatonin as an over-the-counter agent to have a long shelf life, the melatonin degrades in the bottle to serotonin. So a lot of the melatonin that we're talking about is not good quality melatonin. And in other parts of the world, um, for example, in parts in Europe, melatonin is a prescription item and they're using prescription, and they're using pharmaceutical quality melatonin. Melatonin is a hormone that tells the brain that night's approaching. It doesn't really make you sleepy. It tells, simply tells the brain night's approaching. Nocturnal animals, uh, like a rodent, their melatonin elevates in their brains at night also, just like it does in our brains. But to the rodent, the melatonin signals time to get busy. Night's, night's coming. We're nocturnal. So everybody that I see in clinic for insomnia will have probably tried melatonin at some point. So I have a selection bias that the people who are happy with it don't make an appointment to see the doctor. But the people, we're seeing people who routinely are not doing well with it. So just understand that, that melatonin may work for a lot of people, but there's also some caveats to it also. Yeah. And I know that you've looked into things, for example, there were Egyptian sleep chambers, um, all different types of stuff. Can, can you kind of add on to that a little bit or explain that? One of the concepts that we have, it's almost dogmatic, is you remember dreams if you wake up during a dream. Most of the time, we don't remember our dreams. Mm -hmm. And we dream for about an hour and a half to two hours every night is the estimate. But you don't wake up with an hour and a half to two hours worth of dream content in your head. If you're lucky, you have maybe five or ten minutes of a dream. So dreams seem to be meant to be forgotten. But if you are in a situation where you expect a dream to be a signal, if it's your job, you know, if you're um, um, a cleric of some type, um, in ancient Egypt or any, or any of these societies, and your job is to communicate with the gods and tell, tell the, the rest of the people what's up with the gods, and you think that information is going to come to you from your dreams, you need things to make you remember your dreams more. So what I was struck when I was looking at uh, that in, in Egypt and other societies, they've had uh, dream chambers. And when you look at them, they don't look like they're too comfortable to sleep in there. Mm -hmm. And the pillows aren't seem too comfortable. The idea of a comfortable pillow is a relatively new idea. If you look at these ancient pillows, they were rather uncomfortable. They were hard. But what will happen is anything that disrupts your dreaming will make you more aware of your dreaming. So I think they, um, they unwittingly or not, they end up in situations where they weren't sleeping too comfortably, which makes their sleep choppy, made them more aware of their dreams, and therefore they had more information to report to people. I've been speaking with Rafael Palayo, clinical professor at Stanford University School of Medicine in the Division of Sleep Medicine. Um, Dr. Palayo really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for all the information. We appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you for your interest. And a reminder that this is KCRW's good old-fashioned pledge drive. And it's simple. You give and KCRW plays on. We're taking it back to the basics this year. You know how it goes. Once in a while, we ask you to step up for public radio. It's easy. Just give us a call. And your support means that shows like Life Examined stay on the air and that we get to explore all these big topics. So go to kcrw.com give, or you can give us a call, 1-800-600-KCRW. That's 1-800-600-5279. Our producer on Life Examined is Andrea Brody. I'm Jonathan Bastian, and a reminder that you can find our show wherever you listen to podcasts. It's Been a Minute with Sam Sanders is coming up next. Once again, you've been listening to Life Examined on KCRW. We'll see you next week. Have a great day.